Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to The Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpot. But before we go any further, just to say we're 21. This is our 21st episode. And I think 21 tends to be one of those milestone ages. It certainly is here in the United Kingdom. So happy 21st podcasting. Thank you very much. Let's make this a one to remember. Absolutely. With a cake. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. This week we are looking at negotiation and we thought it would be good to consider some of the tactics that get used and which ones are the best to use, what to avoid and how we know when our opponent is using a tactic against us. Okay, so negotiation. Yes. Let me understand what a tactic is, first of all. I'm not sure I have any tactics. I just tend to start discussing what's important and what I need from a negotiation. I don't kind of like think things through tactically. Does that mean... I'm missing something. Well, I think you have more tactics than you realise. So there's two things. There's tactics and there's techniques. So techniques are the kind of things we do along the way that just sort of make us powerful and assert a position. But tactics are where we kind of set something up. So, for example, when you go into a bar, Mm -hmm. you always follow in last behind everybody else. Yes, so cue. Yeah, but you'll let other people go first, so they'll get uh-huh. to the bar before you. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen you do that. Yes. And so that's a tactic, to position yourself as kind of at the back of the group of people going mm-hmm. in so you don't have to buy a round. You know, that's a tactic. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, I do do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wonder where you're going, but yes, you're absolutely right. I position myself within the framework of people around me so yeah. that I'm thinking, right, okay. Not because I want to skip around, but just yeah. because at that particular time I can't be bothered. Yeah. So I let them go first. Yep, so that's a tactic. And I don't even know I'm doing it. Okay. And then they buy the rounds. And then, of course, when everybody's glass is empty, that's the point when you take yourself off to the restroom. That's another tactic. Yes, I do that too. And you come back and somebody else has bought a round. And it's like, and you return to the table. Oh, Jonathan. (laughs) Oh, sorry, mate. How kind of you to get, I'll get it next time. Yeah. And then I'm taxis on order. Those are tactics. Yeah, love it. Okay. So we have similar sort of things in negotiation when we do negotiation. So tactics, and there's lots of different ones. I want to talk about some today Mm because we'll try and sort of cover some of these as we go through. And some of the techniques that can help you be successful. And these are negotiation tactics and techniques that we can use in everyday life, I guess. Yeah, we can. So when somebody says, and, you know, I get this as when I'm trying to sell a product or service that I do. Somebody says, I can't make that decision. Can I check with my manager? I particularly use the reasoning, I need to check with my other directors of the company. And I use it as a stalling tactic because, oh, there isn't a board meeting for another month or so. Yeah. Does that mean that as the person offering whatever it is I'm offering or whatever it is I'm trying to sell, I have nowhere to go? Is that the brick wall? Well, that's what it's designed to do because it's designed to make you want to cut a deal there and then otherwise they're going to have to go and ask somebody. It's a tactic called the higher authority where the person making the decision isn't in the room. And you see this played out all over the place. If you go and buy a car and somebody says, I need to ask my manager. Mm. Or if you're talking to a call centre because your broadband or your energy, you've got issues with your energy supply or whatever it is. And then you're into, okay, I want some compensation for this. And they'll say, well, I can credit your account with 20 euros, pounds, dollars, whatever. And you say, no, that's not enough. You know, look how you've inconvenienced me. And they'll say, well, you know, 
that's the most I can give you. I would have to get permission and you would need to write in to do that. So it's creating this higher authority that somebody else would make that decision and that somebody is not in the room. So most of the time it's a tactic. It's a tactic designed to kind of constrain the negotiation within a particular box. And the way we can counter that in a professional negotiation, not so much on a call center scenario, but in a professional negotiation, the response is, so why is that person not in the room? Or we can set up the negotiation at the outset by saying, before we start, can I just confirm that you have the authority to make the decisions here? Because if they say yes, they can't then play the higher authority tactic on Mm -hmm. you because they've already told you that. And if they say no, then, okay, so why are we having this meeting if I'm not talking to the right person? So you can set it up. But the thing to remember about higher authority is it's usually a tactic and it's usually not real. Not in the call center scenario because that is real. But in a professional situation where people do that, it's not real. It's designed to make you want to or to make you have to Mm -hmm. comply within a particular particular constraint. Dustin, I want to go back on something you just said. When you say about somebody not in the room, a Mm. higher authority, and you use the example of talking to somebody at a contact centre, you're doing the communication using the telephone. Mm -hmm. So does that mean if you haven't got a visual point of reference, i.e. you're not there in person physically, or you're not there on a video call, therefore the other party, or indeed yourself, you can create the not person not in the room. Does that mean you're at a disadvantage if you can't see what's going on? Quite often, yes. And negotiation changes depending on whether we're face-to-face or whether we are via Zoom, Teams or by telephone. So face to face, we get the body language cues. We can pick up on the emotion. If it's a physical situation, they're going out of the room. They have to stage that that they're going to ask somebody on the phone. I'm just going to put you on hold, or you know, it's that mm. sort of thing. And when we're on a Teams and Zoom call, there could well be somebody else there that you can't see, but they're just going to say, just going to take a time out. So the whole dynamics of negotiation change when it's remote to when it's face to face. Over the phone, we have no body language. And depending on the technology, we have limited audio bandwidth as well. So we can't always Mm. hear the inflections, the intonations in the voice. So we can't often hear those nonverbal cues. And those are the things that tell us where they're at, how serious they are, whether they're bluffing. And a skilled negotiator can see those things, can pick up on those things. Most negotiations these days are done over Zoom. They're done using web conferencing technology. Yeah, yeah. And you can get a degree of body language via that. And you've got to make sure that everybody's got their cameras on. You know, you can't have this thing where you've got loads of sort of black screens and people are saying, oh, you know, the dog's eating my webcam and stuff like that. <laughs> you've got to say, look, this is a negotiation. We need to see you. We need to see yeah. each other. If you've got a problem with your webcam, let's reconvene. But you've got to have visuals because you've got to be able to see each other. And you've got to recognize that just in the same way, you're going to have somebody else on that call giving you secret messages on a separate messaging app. They are going to be doing the same as well. So you have to be quite assertive then. I mean, that's another thing you've just mentioned about laying the ground rules for a negotiation. That means you probably have to have a bit of assertiveness with regards to what you want to achieve. The assertiveness is a key thing. Yes, but you might not be in a negotiation where you have the power. So you may not necessarily be able to assert yourself. Yet there are still things you can do to assert your position. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the classics here 
is people often say, should you make people feel uncomfortable in a negotiation? So if it's a face-to-face situation, should you turn the heat up, sit them so they're facing the sunlight coming through the room, make them uncomfortable, not offer them a drink? What do you think? Would you do that? Well, I would say no, Mm. because I tend to have a bit of an ethical approach. Perhaps you should be able to resort to more fact-based, detail-based negotiation. Yeah negotiation tactics and they are yeah, we do yeah. all our tactics i suppose rather than being a bit sneaky about things yeah and you're right because those tactics don't really work i know people that do them i know companies that actually set out to make the suppliers mm. particularly uncomfortable but they don't work they may get you an advantage in a situation where somebody's desperate but we're in a world where global volatility, supply chains are becoming ever more difficult. We need closer relationships with our suppliers. There's no room for that kind of clumsy, Mm. I want a short-term win type negotiation. And actually, there's more value, more benefit when you're negotiating and you show human kindness and you take them all high ground to make sure somebody's comfortable and you get them a drink and you sort them out because that makes you a more morally respectful person for doing that. So the old kind of making them uncomfortable routines just don't work. You know, they don't have credibility. Actually, you have more power as an individual if you take a position of human kindness. So when you are comfortable or indeed confident with regards to what you're buying or what you're selling and you kind of think everything is going according to plan and then you find yourself in a situation for multiple reasons where you have to start negotiating particularly if you weren't expecting to start negotiating again on both sides buying or selling i personally always feel a bit awkward about it so where do you start how do you start the conversation moving in that direction it's a really good point and getting things going can make all the difference now i'm going to give an example here because you and i both used to work in radio we both used to be on air doing frontline radio shows and that moment where you put the fade alive and there's 300,000 people listening. That's quite a scary moment. You have 300,000. Didn't you? No, I just had three. Okay. But that's fine. And one of them was related to you, as <laughs> yeah. I recall. I remember sort of doing that once, and what came out of my mouth was... <laughs> it was complete yeah. and utter and, nonsense. And it kind of carried on that my way, didn't it? Really? gone all dry. I was nervous. It's <laughs> pretty much every show I ever <laughs> yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> So what I did is I started doing this thing where I scripted it. Hi, welcome to the show. We've got loads of stuff. And I've gone into my radio yeah, voice. Yeah, there. And Don't. I would actually... <laughs> Please. <laughs> Stop it. I would script the first 20 words or so that I was going to I'm just going to say the procurement show is moments away from an award. Don't ruin it now, okay? Please. Thank you very much. Yeah. You didn't script things worth where, but you had a guideline, didn't you? Just for the first, just for yeah. the opening. Oh, right. Bit, yeah, yeah, Just yeah, to yeah. get me going. Yeah. And once I got past the first 20 words or so, then it was all flowing. Hmm. So... The same's good for negotiation. Open the negotiation. Maybe script the first thing that you're going to say. But the person that opens is the person with the power. You know, thank you for coming mm. today. We've got a lot to cover. We've got some difficult challenges ahead. I hope we can reach some sort of agreement. So if you open, you've taken the psychological advantage of that situation. But mm. if the other person opens first and they get there before you, counter open. Okay, thank you for introducing yourself. I'd just like to start by saying... We've got a lot to cover. We've got some challenges. You counter because Mm. the person that opens has the power. So the first thing to do is to open. 
then you've got to start getting the conversation going. Now, there's a number of things you could do a kind of, okay, can we just deal with that outstanding invoice query? Can we just agree this? You know, something that's easy to give away. You could start with that. Another approach is the Santa Claus tactic where you give a gift. Now, I'm not talking a physical gift because in Western culture, that's highly inappropriate. In Chinese culture, it would be entirely appropriate to give a gift to the people that you are negotiating mm. with. But it could be a concession. So quite often, a way to open is we just want to start by giving you this concession. So a supplier might say, actually, here's a rebate check for the last six months, which is higher than we thought it was going to be. And what that does is it creates this obligation right at the start. Because when somebody gives you something, it sets the expectation for reciprocity. Somebody gives you something, you feel you need to give them does something it, does back. It need to, does it need to be something as big as that? Does it need no. to be money? Could it be like, here's a link to a blog post that I found last yeah. night, which is right along your lines of industry. I printed out a copy for you, or here's a copy of the link. Yeah, something like that. Just something that you give them, because if they've come to go on the attack, it just makes it a little harder for uh, them. Oh, yeah. Because you've given them a gift and they have a little debt to you. This kind of psychological debt, we don't think of it consciously, but it's like if you go around to somebody's house and last time they came to you, they bought wine and chocolates and flowers or something. When you go to them, you think, oh, you know, they bought all this stuff last mm. time. I've got to do the same. You know, you feel you owe them. So whenever people give us something, we feel we've got to give it back. So starting a negotiation with a small gift of something creates the obligation of reciprocity, which makes it harder for them to be quite so tough with you. And another tactic that I've seen is the full reveal, where you basically show them everything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what parties right you've been going to, Jonathan. Right at the outset. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is, and I remember doing this when I was negotiating for a lease for our previous office building, yeah. and the director said, okay, this is what I can do. I can give you this, and I can give you this, and I can give you this. And she laid it out, and it was a fabulous deal. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and I'd done my homework, I knew the position. So being a procurement person, I obviously tried to negotiate. And she just said, no, that's it. You know, that is the most I can give you. And actually, it was the best deal. And in the end, once I realized that she wasn't trying to negotiate, yeah. I just took the deal. And so that's an interesting thing because it creates this trust right at the outset of a negotiation. Interestingly, if there's multiple negotiations, you can actually change your tactic the next time around because people already trust you. So it can work in your advantage. Again, full reveal, use it sometimes. Sometimes it can be very powerful because it takes away the need to negotiate. Yes, but I suppose the other party could still ask for other things, though, couldn't they? And, yeah. And could you kindly ask the previous occupant to leave this, that and the other without me paying for it? Because I quite like that. I suppose you've still got certain things you can ask for. But all the role play examples that mm. you've given me so far, the language, the wording, they're very conversational. They're actually very friendly. Mm. Everything you're doing is wrapped up in a nice conversation one that actually i wouldn't feel too bad having or holding with someone yeah but what about getting emotional mm -hmm. and making it seem as though they're hurting you yeah is that a tactic that you can use because i remember once what did i have i used the negotiation tactic regarding the deadline for a delivery yeah 
I can't remember if it was a client or a supplier, but you know, there was a situation where somebody in my mind was being unreasonable. I needed to move. I needed to negotiate the delivery mm-hmm. of something because I had problems elsewhere within my supply chain, so to speak. It was some production issues. But the person at the other end was like, oh, you're going to miss it. We'll have to pay all sorts of issues. We'll have this, that and the other go wrong. You can't possibly miss this deadline. But I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Was I? Were they just trying to hurt me? Was I trying to hurt them? What about pain? Pain is an important part of a negotiation, and so is emotion as well. And the trick is knowing what's real and what's not real. Because if it really matters to you, if you have to do a deal, because personally you will stand or lose, and quite often that's the case, you know, suppliers may or may not get their bonus, the people we're dealing with may be bonused in terms of what they have to achieve from things. So there can be a personal dimension here as well. So if you are negotiating and that is threatened then you're going to get emotional. And, you know, that same response when we feel threatened triggers the different behavior. And it's no different. And negotiations bring that out where you create a situation where sometimes people are threatened because they're not going to get the outcome. And Mm -hmm. that triggers a fight or flight response. You know, the basic kind of primeval things that we do happen in a negotiation. And those are vital signs, by the way, because we can see signs of that in people's body language. And that tells us when we've kind of pushed this to the place it needs to be quite often. But what it will sometimes manifest itself is as emotion, emotional outbursts and uncontrolled emotion. Sometimes it's real and sometimes it's fake. I remember negotiating and I was just holding a firm position because I was in a strong position. And the person I was negotiating with who thought it was a done deal because it was a 30 year old kind of relationship, but it had gone a bit kind of south, just started throwing his papers up, stood up, shouted, threw things around the room a little bit, said, this is an outrage packed everything up and said I'm going and stormed out of the door now I mean I was fairly new to negotiation there and I kind of sat there in the room thinking what do I do now you know I've got no idea how to handle this situation and two minutes later he walked back in calm as a cucumber and he said okay I'm ready to talk now and it was all an act just to give this emotional outburst Mm. so sometimes it's fake but I think the other thing is there are little things people use to make it look like they're hurting Mm. because when somebody's hurting what do you want to do well you want to get your own way don't you well that's you most human beings want to go and help them oh sorry sorry you're talking about me <laughs> I think we've seen your <laughs> true colours here <laughs> within yeah, well okay, yeah make a I, note of that uh, yeah okay not going to get any help from you am I <laughs> Next time I need something, I just want to get my own way. <laughs> no, I thought you meant within the role of a negotiation or arguing over something. No, if somebody's hurting, obviously, yeah, I'll go and get some plasters now and, you know, you and, and nurse them back down. Yeah, yeah I, I, I see your example. Carry on, carry on. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's part of empathy that most of us have where, where if somebody's hurting we want to help them yes of course and it's actually a particular achilles heel for salespeople because salespeople are emotionally competent people that's how they get the job because yeah. they're able to connect with people and they have a natural weakness that when somebody's hurting they will want to kind of help them now that same dynamic comes into a negotiation so if you're hurting people back off actually this is it most salespeople good salespeople yeah. genuinely want to 
help their customer. It doesn't come from a place of just wanting to make the sale. Yes, you want to sell the product or service, but you should believe in the product or service that you're selling mm-hmm. because you believe it will help the customer. In most cases, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just one more thing on that kind of hurting thing because, you know, this is the same thing that tradespeople do when you ask them to come and do work for you. What they yeah. Yes. sharp intake of breath yeah you know screw their face up and back away and you back away think, oh i've upset you i'm sorry you know all that sort of stuff but there's a story that somebody i work with tells of when she was doing a negotiation she had to bring a supplier in to get another kind of 0.2 uh, of a percent reduction out of them and the supplier knew this and it was going to be a difficult negotiation and the supplier the account manager turned up with a neck brace on and sat the whole negotiation not moving his head at all being in pain because apparently he'd had some sort of accident or something like that and she took pity on him because he was in pain for the whole negotiation really struggling to do anything and led him off the extra 0.2 percent he went 10 minutes later somebody came in and said what's the deal with john from the supplier i've just seen him getting into a car and taking a neck brace off and driving off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the whole thing had been set up <laughs> to make it look like he Seriously? was in pain. Yeah, this really happened. So pain is an interesting thing. Showing pain triggers empathy and makes the other side back away. It's a natural human tendency and something that we need to be cautious of as negotiators. The Procurement Show. Exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. Ever wondered what it would be like to negotiate as an agent for a big-name band or celebrity? It can't be easy, especially when it comes to celebrity riders. You know, those demands that celebrities insist are written into their contracts in order for them to perform. The magazine Marie Claire have published some of the more notable ones, which include George Clooney who insisted on a custom-made beach hut and basketball court while he filmed the movie Gravity. And then there's Cher, who demands a separate room for all her wigs. Christina Aguilera insists that on her way to the venue, under no circumstances are the vehicles to be allowed to encounter any delays due to traffic. And Will Ferrell insists on having a flight of stairs on wheels on stage with him, along with a rainbow on wheels and a fake tree on wheels, along with a three-wheeled mobility scooter. And you thought you were having a hard time negotiating right now. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. What if either you or them just want to close it and not do any more and just say, look, what do you want? Yeah, what do you want from this? So establishing what you want from a negotiation is a key part of exploring positions. And it's okay to ask those sort of questions. So what are you looking to get from this? So what does good look like for you? Because we need to kind of get a feel for where are they starting at? We call this a tactic called line in the sand, but we've got to use this with caution. So just like sort of drawing a line in the sand, Mm -hmm. if you put a position down, then you are drawing a line in the sand that then anchors 
that negotiation to that particular mm-hmm. point. So if we're negotiating and let's say I say, okay, so what's the price for such and such? And you say, it's a thousand pounds. Yes. And then I say, oh, well, that's too much. We haggle and stuff like that. But everything starts at that 1,000. And I might say it's 800 and you say, no, 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 it's got to be sort of 950. And everything starts and is anchored to that position you put down. So who should go first? Should you go first and say, this is what I want and kind of let them and then work from that point? Or you should say, make me an offer. You go first. What do you want? I don't like saying make me an offer because they always come back with 500 or something crazy, don't they? <laughs> no, I would probably say, where do you want me to go with this? Yeah. How much of a discount are you looking for? Are you yeah. hoping to achieve? What are you looking to spend? Because if this is a one-off situation, mm, mm-hmm. we've got no customer supplier loyalty there. It's just a one-off. But if there is the potential of loyalty, the potential of repeat business, and we can even include that as part of the agreement from the outset, yeah. then I think I've got more to give. I will obviously have a line somewhere because mm-hmm. nobody wants to sell a product or service less than what they're paying with regards to their suppliers. So, yeah. yeah. And asking the budget as a salesperson, that's a key tactic that salespeople use. And you work in the creative industry. So that's pretty typical in the creative industry to start by saying, so what is the budget? And then you work up to there. In the procurement world, most procurement people would not get into the budget conversation with you so based on a budget that would be stopped it's okay the requirement is this what is the offer the price for being able to Mm. do it to that particular requirement so that somebody has to go first and i hear people say oh you know i did a negotiation course and was told that we should always make the supplier go first well not necessarily it depends Somebody has to go first. If you are really certain of your position and you know you've got the facts, the data, you know where this should be, then you can go first because you can use that to your advantage to establish a point. If you have no idea and you're feeding your way, it's better to get them to go first, even if you know they're going to come in with an absurd position, because at least you can then work towards that. But you're taking away the risk that you come in with a position that's too high Mm. and you could have got more, Mm. for example. But then everybody has a budget somewhere along the line. Everybody has a list of specifications for whatever it is that they're buying. So some of the situation is completely made up. You know how much you've got set aside as a business or an organization to spend on that whatever it is. And you know whatever it is you want to buy. So all of this is a bit of a game, isn't it? Well, it is a bit of a game. And of course, suppliers want to know what that budget is. So, you know, the most beautiful customer to a supplier is one that says my budget is this you Mm. know and what can you do for that because you say well you know it's your lucky day today and indeed that's how many big corporations still spend money especially marketing interestingly enough you know i've got a budget to run a one million euro campaign you know what can you do me for that and then the discussion flows from that that's not good procurement good procurement is about saying okay what's the right market price for these different bundles of creative talent and production time and what are our requirements for this and how can we find the right provider to do that so you actually slightly take it away from the idea of being driven by a budget but what you are doing when you're negotiating as a seller you are trying to establish where they'll go to on this 
because quite often the kind of, oh, this is above my budget is a tactic. Sometimes it's genuine, but you're trying to establish what they can spend. And maybe as a seller, you're even trying to get them to go and get more budget Mm. because you've laid out such a credible position for them. And right now, as we're seeing companies defending cost increases, that's exactly what's happening. So suppliers are having their day in the sun in many sectors and being able to say costs are rising, which we know, but being able to perhaps inflate some of that and continue to be quite aggressive in demanding that to try and secure a bigger return than perhaps reflects the genuine cost increases that there are. And one of the challenges that the procurement community have right now is getting behind that and understanding what the actual true increase should be versus what suppliers are demanding that we go with. Let's be open and honest about things. I'm sure that there are situations where as either side negotiating, you can start to lose your way a bit, especially if you're negotiating multiple things at the same time or indeed something that has multiple parts. Yeah. Again, I'm in creative industry, so there'll be a negotiation with regards to creating whatever it is, then licensing whatever it is, then repurposing it and reusing it a little bit later on down the line. Lots of different aspects relating to the same thing. How do you manage the situation and stay in control to make sure you don't lose your way? Yeah, so this is an important point. So when we go into a negotiation, there are multiple negotiables. That's what we call them, the negotiables. They are our shopping list of the things we want. It's rare that a negotiation is just about price. We often, we talk about it in terms of price points because that's how we relate the kind of trading principles. But actually, you know, typically we might be talking about price and how long it's going to take, the lead times, the delivery times, perhaps specific legal terms and conditions, Mm -hmm. payment terms that are associated with that. And in the creative world, you might be talking around, you know, what we're going to license here, perhaps negotiating on the talent that you're going to bring in to do voiceovers and who's going to do the production, whether you're going to animate it and so on. So all of those different things, you end up with a pretty big list. Now, the risk is... If we don't manage those multiple negotiables, then we can come unstuck. Because what can happen is you can find yourself in a situation where your opponent says, can we just agree that we'll do this? And you look at that, it's a small kind of isolated point. Yeah, I'll agree to that. And what about this? How about if we do this, would you do that? And you end up making these little points of agreement to multiple different things. And before you realize it, you realize that you've actually given away quite a bit. There's all sorts of little bits you've given away and you're actually not in such a good position. So it's really important that we understand all of our negotiables. For each one, we need to be clear what's our most desirable outcome. So we need to think about what we want to get. So price, lead time, terms, whatever they may be. What's the most desirable outcome and what's our least desirable outcome, the least that we will accept. So we need to have that as a list. And we visualize this with the principle of a checkerboard. So it's like every single thing we're negotiating is a counter on the checkerboard. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to move forward, we're giving a concession. Now, our opponent, they have their negotiables, and some of them will be kind of opposite positions to ours. They may have things that we're not interested in and vice versa, but they've got their own counters. And what we're doing is we're kind of moving our counters to the center And at the point when we're together, we've made an agreement, but we've got multiple counters. Yeah. So there's some principles that we need to put into play here. One, we need to have this visualization of all the different counters. In other words, all our different negotiables. 
And if we're going to move one of our pieces, in other words, give something, we need to get something back. It's called the something for something principle. We don't give something unless we've got something back. So mm-hmm. we should never be in a situation where we give a concession, give a concession, give a concession, and they've not given us anything. There should always be some sort of trade for doing that. And we need to watch out for that salami slicing thing. You know, just like you slice little pieces of a salami off. Which is lovely. I like salami. I like salami. But it's a tactic. You know, your opponent just gives you to make lots of little concessions that seem like you're kind of getting things moving. Before you know it, you've only got half a salami. Mm. And I always slice my salami thinner because it makes it look as though you've got more salami. Yes, that That, doesn't surprise me. That's very interesting what you're saying about when you give something, you want something back. They, of course, don't have to be the same thing as you alluded to. Like, for example, if somebody wants something at a lower price point, you might have to, yourself as a supplier, renegotiate how you create that whatever it is and extend the duration of delivery so you can utilise downtime for example yeah when you said about open book earlier can you be open book at that situation and explain to them where you are sometimes it depends on the negotiation if you're setting out to be collaborative and to work together with somebody you might be much more open book in terms of sharing what you want to get out of this and what's important and why and how can we help each other achieve that but some negotiations are not like that some negotiations we're claiming value Mm. and we wouldn't want to do that we wouldn't want to reveal our position it's just about how can we maximize our position because the relationship is not important to us long term it's just about getting the best we can in that particular moment. What about if during all this conversation you don't realise until later, but you make a bit of an oopsie and there's something you've negotiated that you can't deliver? Mm -hmm. Where do you stand with regards to going back? And I know that's a pretty difficult question to ask because of various some negotiations result in signing a legal agreement there and then and it could be pretty much you know signed sealed and done and dusted yeah but surely there is some way of even correcting those situations what do you do so there's a number of things here because we fall into the trap of thinking if we make an agreement in a negotiation you can't unagree that that Mm. we are bad people morally bad people and back on your word. Exactly. Mm. And indeed, that's the line we would use. So if somebody says to us, actually, I need to go back on that, then that would be our line of defense. We would say, hang on a minute. I find that a little bit morally unacceptable that you're going back on your word. So we would use that as a line of defense. But in terms of if we do it, then we need a way of being able to get out of things. Because it's entirely possible that we may agree something and we may need to unagree it. If we have got to that point then it is okay to play the the situation has changed, just like your sat-nav recalculates. You say, right, okay, the situation's changed. Now we've had this discussion. Actually, that thing I said back there, that doesn't work anymore. We need to go back and look at that. The KGB used to do that in their interrogations, but we can kind How of do, do it know? on a, well, you know, I've been around a bit, spent a bit of time in a, I was going to say goulash in Siberia. It's not called a goulash, is it? What's it called? I can't remember the word. Goulag. It's called a goulag. Producer Martin just said yes, what? Goulag. goulag. Yeah. Spent a lot of time in a goulash. <laughs> There, there, uh, there are times yeah. I wish. Good I'd hangover to the cure, by the way, Goulash. I'll tell you. Yeah. So just to finish on that yeah. point, ideally we don't want to get to that situation in the first place, and the way we avoid it is not agreeing anything on the way through. Uh-huh. And this is the nothing is agreed until everything's agreed principle. So you can say yes, I agree in principle. 
but I want to get everything on the table first, subject to the overall deal. When all the Brexit negotiations were going on, Michel Barnier mm. for the EU, that was his favourite line. Nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. So you reserve the right to come back. And that's a very powerful thing. The key to this is not making agreement along the way until you've got the whole thing there on the table. We've discussed numerous negotiation tactics. One that I remember personally, yeah. and I like to bring these back to personal situations because I think they're relatively open for everyone to familiarise themselves with. When I moved into my current house, we had old sash windows that were falling apart. Mm-hmm. They all needed to be replaced. In the UK, we have a bit of a joke about double glazing salesmen, you know, the sealed units that yeah. have two panes of glass. And we wanted new sash windows with that in. So I got goodness knows how many people around to give us quotes. And trust me, they vary quite a lot. And the salespeople come in, they measure these windows and they go... Sharp in, take a breath. Big windows you got here. And I said, oh, thanks very much. Yeah. And they'd be scribbling down fingers yeah. and all this kind of... Yeah. Well, you know, going to cost you... I'm just going to say it wasn't this. I wish it was. 10,000 pounds, 10,000 British pounds and... But, you know, if you agree the deal today, I can give you 50% off. Mm -hmm. And it literally was 50% off. And I kept on thinking, why is it 50% off now, half price now, and double tomorrow? Is what I was thinking. Or in other words, what was so different about today and this situation, which meant he didn't want to give me any thinking time. He wanted the signature and it was kind of like almost forced. What do you do in those situations and why do they insist on using those examples? So the thing you're talking about is for a deal to date. And the reality is nothing changes, but it is a way of creating a kind of thing where you've got to jump left or you've got to jump right. And that's classic sales. You get people to a point, rather than let them think about it, either you do that or you do that. You create an imperative. Now, translate that into a sort of professional procurement negotiation. There's not many sort of procurement practitioners that would fall for the for a deal today. But there is a kind of more sophisticated way that that plays out, which is by creating time constraints, something Mm -hmm. that has to change. I saw it recently with a company that said, "Okay, we can do this level of discount now, but our prices are going up from the first of next month and it's going to be mandated by head office, higher authority. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to agree this now. Otherwise, I can't hold this then. Now, probably complete nonsense but there's a higher authority tactic or for a deal-to-day tactic mm-hmm. being played to try and compel a decision to be made. The thing is to get behind what is the time imperative, what is creating the time constraint, because remember time is a source of power in negotiation. Mm-hmm. So if you can constrain the other person's time so they have to make a deal, then you get the power. The way we counter that is to take away the time power. So currently we're seeing suppliers driving in cost increases or trying to, but where they lack the power is they don't have time on their side because in procurement, what the tactics procurement people are using is to just hold back, show me the breakdown, let's agree what's real, how can we delay this? You know, those are the things that we've all been doing to try and sort of respond to some of the price increases. So time has been one of the powers that have been used to try and deflect price increases. So the response some suppliers have taken, and we've seen this in the retail sector, is to say, actually, I'm going to stop supplying you. And we've actually seen some big names refuse to supply big retailers here Mm -hmm. in the UK because they've decided to play that card. Actually, we're going to put you on stop. Mm -hmm. And that swings the power way back into the supplier's favor and then puts time on their side. So all of these things are creating time imperatives. Most of them are not real, but the key with them is to understand what's driving the time constraint and see if you can change it. 
It's time to ask Jonathan. And today's Ask Jonathan comes from Dion Sosido, who asks, Dear Jonathan, mm-hmm. <laughs> how can I negotiate a pay rise? I've never had much success, and each time I've tried to do this, the response is always to wait, and things will come good, but they never do. That's a great question. And this is a tactic called jam tomorrow or jelly tomorrow in the US. And it's about the promise that good things will happen, but just stick with it as it is. Now, the good news right now is if you are an employee, then depending on what you do and who you are in terms of qualifications and abilities and skills, you're in a strong position Mm -hmm. because it's hard to find talent right now. So that's the good news. So employers all over the world are seeking to retain the talent that it has and changing practices to do that. But that old thing of getting a raise, you know, it's the hardest thing in the world. I've been there. That's why I left corporate life because of these sort of challenges. So there are a number of things you can do. The first is you've got to recognize the power you have in that situation. And if you haven't got power, what can you do to get power? The classic, of course, is you need an alternative. So you walk away. But that's not always practical and possible. If you're trying to negotiate a pay rise, then it's about being able to communicate and articulate the value that you have. Doing a market comparison can really help. But also when you're met with that jam tomorrow, jelly tomorrow tactic, it's about being able to defend that by saying, well, that doesn't work because that's a future thing. This is something that I need to happen now. What are the things that I can do to be able to agree a means to increase my salary now? Or if it's a future thing, how can we lock that in now? Mm But there has to be a credible alternative that you're prepared to go with because the employer needs to know that if they don't act, if they don't jump left or right, then things aren't going to continue. If the employer thinks you'll just continue to accept the position, that's exactly what they're going to do. So you have to create a situation where they have to jump left or right. They have to do something. Otherwise, you're not going to necessarily be around because you've got a better offer. It all comes down to alternatives at the end of the day and being able to walk away. I think my advice here is don't fall for the jam tomorrow, the jelly tomorrow tactic. It is a tactic. Sometimes it comes good, but more often than not, it's a way of just keeping you sweet for a time being. Find as many arguments as you can to defend that. Nicely said. And don't forget, if you'd like to ask Jonathan, here's how to get in touch. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. You mentioned higher authority. Yeah. What about good cop, bad cop? You know, so-and-so won't let me do it, but, or I can do this, but... You know, somebody being positive, somebody being negative, somebody being nice and kind, somebody being a bit more putting their foot down with things. That's a tactic as well, isn't it? It is. Good cop, bad cop. You see this on every TV police drama and you think nobody really does that. And yes, they do. And they still do it in negotiation. Mm. Now, the idea that you're negotiating with somebody who's being warm and friendly and lovely and they then bring in their colleague who suddenly is really aggressive and tears you apart and stuff like that. And they go out and the other one says, well, you know, sorry about that, but, you know, they've got a point. You know, we do need to sort this out. And it's designed to shake you up and undermine you and, you know, in a police situation, make you confess and spill the beans. It does work in a negotiation scenario. Just the idea of somebody not being nice and being different can really shake things up. If you're in that type of hard leverage type negotiation, So we shouldn't dismiss it, but we need to be aware when it's being done on us Mm -hmm. because it is just a tactic. But, I mean, that reminds me of a number of other related tactics Mm. that come from that. One is the ogre. 
So the threat of somebody nasty coming in who might just stop this whole thing dead, mm -hmm. that's quite often played. You know, I remember somebody who had a particular nasty reputation of negotiating with suppliers and he would just rip them apart. He was a guy who had grown up on the streets in a very impoverished community and he was probably one of the most streetwise individuals I'd ever met, but he was head of procurement for a big global corporation. But he knew how to survive, literally, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's how he'd got where he got to. And in a negotiation, he was brutal, absolutely scarily brutal. And I teach this stuff all over the world. I learned so much watching him. We uh -huh. did some role play. I watched him. I thought, Okay, not seen that before. Did he break the rules occasionally? Well, actually, what he did in one negotiation, one role play, somebody started laying out a position and he just said, you're lying, you're bluffing, you're unethical, yeah. I'm not dealing with you. That's it, end of negotiation. And it stopped right there. But this guy had a reputation for being an ogre. He actually wasn't. He was a really lovely individual. But what they would do is they say, well, if we can't get this, I'm going to have to bring this person in. And they go, oh, don't do that. You know, we'll agree there. So that's a kind of variant of that. And while we're talking about police, let me just talk about the Columbo. We haven't talked about the Columbo. The Columbo? You probably don't remember Columbo, the 70s TV yeah, cop yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do as a kid. Played by yeah. Peter Falk. And he was the bumbling cop that the bad people thought they got away with the crime because he was hopeless. And he'd just keep asking questions that mm. they thought were irrelevant. And right at the very end, what was that thing you'd say right at the very end, just as they thought they got away with their crime? There's just one more thing. Yeah, that's it. There is just one more thing. And that's a really great tactic in a negotiation. Just when you've kind of got to the point where you've got something there to close on, you do a Columbo. He says, there is just one more thing. Can we just agree that you're going to do this or add this in? And you ask for a little concession. So if you're trying to buy a car, there is mm. just one more thing. Mm. Can you give me a full tank of gas? And you just yeah. add that little thing, something yeah. that is so small and inconsequential to the deal, but they're not going to say no because... They don't want to lose waver. everything else as well, yeah. And you can play it multiple yeah. times. There is one more thing. and There is just one more thing. And you can keep doing it. Keep asking till they say no. That's another thing we can do in a negotiation. People get afraid to keep asking for stuff. Keep asking. Yeah. What are they going to do? They're going to say no. So you keep asking till they say no. Yeah, fair enough. All good tactics. Yeah. Any ones we shouldn't use, though? Ethically or because they simply don't work? I think the key tactic not to use is the split the difference tactic. Right, okay. As a meet you halfway. Meet you halfway. Meet in the middle. Uh-huh. Well, why? I mean, sometimes that seems pretty reasonable. I meet you halfway. Yeah. We'll go 50-50. Sometimes if you're that close to cutting a deal, it can be the thing that gets it over the line. But think about it. Imagine that we're laying out positions. So you're at £100. I'm saying, no, it's got to be, as a procurement person, mm -hmm. it's got to be 60. Mm -hmm. right? We're kind of at that point. And I've been saying, no, my position's based on facts and data and I've understood the market and all those other th arguments. And you might say, yeah, but my costs are increased. And no, we've both laid out our positions. So we're 40 pounds apart in mm -hmm. the thing we're negotiating. And if I say to you, actually, let's split the difference and let's meet in the middle. At 80. What I've just done is I've said everything I've told you up until that point was complete nonsense and it's not based on facts and data because I can just split the difference. I see what I mean. Undermined all my own yes, arguments. Yes, I get you. Not only that, I've told you, I've revealed to you that my LDO, my least desirable outcome, is actually closer to where you are than I've been telling you it is. Yeah. And if you're smart, you would then say, do you know what? My position's based on facts and data. I can't budge. I tell you what, I'll split the difference from your new position to 90. And suddenly I've come all the way to you. Mm -hmm. So it's a tactic that gets used a lot. Occasionally use it 
carefully to close the deal but avoid it time mm-hmm. is a tactic surely what yeah. about deciding not to return someone's call in order to make them sweat it out or Definitely. i mean it, you know obviously we all have deadlines for certain things there may or may not be enough time to play with time but what about utilizing time as a yeah tactic? yeah and we talked about time as a power utilize it as a tactic as well so in a sort of multi-contact negotiation just not returning somebody's calls not being too keen is really strong as well mm-hmm. go radio silence for them the other thing there's a lot of little power tricks along the way we can use so not go to the table that if you signal to the other party that you're going to come and negotiate you've effectively told them i'm ready to give you a concession so it can be quite powerful to sometimes not go to the table and say well i'm not sure why you want to have this negotiation because our position is quite clear there's Mm. nothing to talk about here now you may end up talking about it but if you're saying yeah i'm ready to come and negotiate with Mm -hmm. you you're saying i'm ready to come and give you something So sometimes not going to the table, creating reciprocity. We talked about that. Social proof. Look, why are you not doing this? Everyone's doing this. All your peers are doing this. You're going to be left behind if you don't Mm. make this Mm. agreement here. Appeal to their ego. That can be really powerful. Remember, you're negotiating with people. Sometimes you have people that they like to win. They like to somehow have their ego stroked. And I remember being in a negotiation where I was trying to negotiate. I really wasn't doing a very good job. I thought I knew what I was doing. I had no clue. And he said to me, oh, you're good at this, aren't you? Where did you learn to negotiate? I thought, good, he's told me I'm a good negotiator. And what he was doing was stroking my ego. And I fell for it and said, yeah, I'm okay at this, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Bigging them up. It goes a long way, actually. Mm. Could choose your person carefully because it needs to be somebody who falls for that sort of stuff. But everyone has a motivation. Mm. Everyone's trying to get something out of Mm. it. And behind everything, you know, there is a need that they're trying to address. So, you know, get behind that because often... If you can feel the need, you can actually get the outcome much easier. You mentioned role-playing. A lot of this is all about performance. It is. What if you're not very good at performance? I mean, occasionally I try my best, but sometimes... I just end up taking things too personally, mm-hmm. especially if the answer is no, yeah. and I'm being pushed back, and I think I'm being treated unfairly. I tend to get upset. Also, I tend to be worried about upsetting other people as well. Does that make me a pushover? Am I trying to push them over? How do you manage the art of the performance regarding yeah. the whole thing? So. This is about personality types. We're all different. And the key to negotiation is understanding who you are, what your personality is. It's really important. Now, salespeople tend to have quite consistent traits that we see. So they tend to be quite competitive, quite driven, quite empathic type people. So often the personality profiles are quite similar. And in procurement, it's much, much more varied. So it's important that we understand that because some people will be the Rottweilers who are quite happy to go into a situation, be really tough, not care about upsetting the other people and then you have the people that really don't like the idea of upsetting people so we do a lot of negotiation training all over the world and i'll work with a group of 16 people or so and in that group and when we come to the role play you'll have the people that want to just tear everybody apart and then you'll have the people that will have had the sleepless night because they've got to do the role play, because Mm. they don't want to be in that situation where they have to try and be this tough negotiator. And sadly, a lot of the other negotiation sort of training that's out there, often it is very one-dimensional about how to be conflictual and tough in a negotiation. The reality is real life isn't like that. Mm. So we've got to know who we are. If we're genuine, kind of honest, open people that don't like to upset people, that is who we are. 
Now, either we change that behaviour and we act for a negotiation and become that kind of Rottweiler, and indeed that's the way to do it for many people, or we accept that's who we are and we play to that as a strength. The point is we've got to understand where the weaknesses might lie and how we counter that in terms of our own behaviour. You can't change your personality, but you can change your behaviour. So know who you are and then think about the degree to which you're going to be you. Now, I remember running a course and talking about this and somebody at the back said, what, you're suggesting that I should act in a negotiation? Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely. You know, negotiation is often one big act. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, that's unethical. I don't, you know. And she honestly thought that she should never act. But the reality is negotiation is often a big act. We've just got to decide how far we're going to go. So questions we've got to ask ourselves personally is, are we going to bluff or are we going to be honest? You can do either, by the way. Bluffing is the professional term for lying. We just call it a bluff. But people lie in a negotiation because that's how you establish your position. Actually, you can be very professional and never lie in a negotiation, but you've got to be smarter about not revealing certain bits of information. I was going to say, you can't disclose everything. No, you can't. Because (laughs) otherwise... Yeah, and in my early days of negotiation, I bluffed and got caught out many times. And then I decided, actually, I'm going to just try and be genuine. And I learned where to be selective about revealing information. And you can negotiate without actually bluffing or lying and being honest, but you've got to be careful about what you do and do not reveal. So it is entirely possible to be very genuine. And this is also part of understanding the relationship that we want with them longer term as well, because if we're building a relationship, then we really do need to be ourselves. If it's a one-time hard leverage negotiation, we can do a bit of acting if we want to, but these are about personal choices. So, Mr. Jonathan O'Brien... What's your favourite tactic to use? So I'm going to give you two. Okay. I think cherry picking is one of my favourites. And this is a classic procurement tactic. So imagine if I said to you, Paul, we want you to do a big media campaign for us. Mm -hmm. Love to. And you come back with a particular price for doing that. And then I say, actually, you know, this is going to be bigger than I thought it was. Actually, this is going to run over the next three years and it's going to include many more channels and outlets. And I give you this big, elaborate kind of big piece of work. And, you know, you're starting to foam at the mouth with excitement. And I say, but I'm going to need you to work on the offer. So you go back and you say, well, you know, based on this new big package of work, there's much more volume there so I can improve my rates. I can do this. And you come back with this really great offer to get this big piece of work. And then I say, that's great. Thank you. The situation's changed. Actually, we're not going to do the big piece of work. We're just going to go with the original piece of work. But thank you for the new pricing, because that's now much better than I cherry pick. Okay, yeah. So that's the first one. You also got them to reveal a bit as well, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, and that's a classic procurement tactic there. The second is the decoy. I think this is my favorite tactic. Right. So imagine you're the supplier. Yes. And I'm the buyer. And you've got a current contract with us. It's coming to an end and we're looking to place a new contract. So we're going out to Marketplace to look to do that. You want to retain the business. Now, after COVID... What you've done is you've consolidated your operations into one factory, which made perfect sense because you needed to reduce Mm -hmm. overheads. But the decoy is about finding a decoy, finding something early on in a negotiation and using that as a big obstacle that's going to prevent agreement. I'm getting to the point where we can't resolve it, then bringing it back later. Mm -hmm. So in this example... 
imagine we start the negotiation and you've made an offer. And I say, okay, thank you for that. But there's a problem. You're now only one site and you were two. We're worried about business continuity. And actually your two sites were geographically more suitable to what we were trying to achieve. And you act surprised. Well, hang on a minute. You know, we've survived COVID and we've consolidated and you knew we did this. Why is this a surprise to you? And suddenly I'm coming at you with this issue that's irrational. I'm questioning why you have rationalized and that that might be a showstopper that we can't do the deal. And Mm -hmm. I've made it this big thing. You're worried that we can't cut the deal because you've restructured your operation and the whole thing looks like it's going to fall apart. So then I say, all right, let's park that. Let's talk about the offer. And we do the negotiation. And we get to the end of the negotiation and say, right, we've still got the issue with the consolidation of the factory. But I tell you what, if we can just agree this extra favorable deal We'll accept that, but you've got to give us this. And I use that decoy as a bargaining chip right at the end to get something else from you. And actually, I suppose the thing about that is that decoy is literally that. It doesn't actually affect the product or service no, that you're getting at all. It's a decoy. Your argument is, you know, about with regards to resilience is plausible, yeah. but it's, not always applicable. Yeah, you've got to create something that's plausible mm. that they can't address. It needs to be something they can't say, well, we can fix that. Yeah because otherwise you've lost your power. Well, you know what? I'm so pleased we get on well as friends, not just as <laughs> customer supplier and indeed uh, co-presenters, but what are your three takeaways? Number one, remember that we are all expert negotiators. Mm. Negotiation isn't a special thing that you have to go on a course for. Courses can help. Of course they can. Reading books, especially one particularly good book, can really help to learn the repertoire, the process, the tactics that you can use. But actually, we all are expert negotiators because it's a skill for life. It's something we learn from birth, even before we're born, in terms of making sure we're getting what we want. So know who you are, Mm -hmm. know who your personality is, and build your repertoire. The second is, think about what the other party is doing, because behind everything they do, behind every tactic they use, every request they make, is a need. So they need something. So why are they asking that? Why are they positioning it in that way? What is it they're trying to do? Ask why. And the third thing, I think, which is something that I'm seeing right now when I'm working with procurement people battling to defend price increases with suppliers is often you have more power than you realize. It's easy to fall into believing everything that we're being told by the supplier. But if you actually work the powers that you have, use the tactics. Tactics can really help here. Quite often you find actually the supplier is perhaps more dependent on you than you might realize. And of course, power in negotiation comes from having alternatives. And there are always alternatives. Mm -hmm. We can find alternatives. So you have more power than you realize. And don't be afraid to think about the alternatives that could be available to us. Okay, yeah, three good takeaways there. I like all of them, actually. Just one final thing to ask you, John. Just one more thing. Just one more thing. We don't often bring this into the procurement show because we run the procurement show as its own thing. You've mentioned that you do training with regards to negotiation tactics. Just to say, because you've come up with such good points, if any of our listeners wanted to contact you at your firm to get on one of your courses, you take your courses around the world, don't you? Thank you for mentioning that. How do we find out more? So positivepurchasing.com. Mm -hmm. redsheetnegotiation.com and everything's there and yes we work all over the world training companies and training practitioners in big organisations how to be really good at negotiation using the red sheet Mm -hmm. methodology. Excellent and don't forget listeners when you come to book your place don't forget to negotiate on the price right.
People do that. <laughs> I do yeah. So I teach people how to negotiate. And then I have a negotiation <laughs> with a head of procurement or something who's then using all the stuff I've taught them in the training course back on me. And I've got nowhere to go on that. So you're bloody right. Well, at, least, like, at least they yeah. were paying attention. Yeah. You've been listening to the procurement show. Thank you very much for your continued support. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And also, please do get in touch if you have any questions or comments. Do share. Thank you. You've been listening to the procurement show. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing, all rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.